Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Almost Persuaded. All right, so as we return to Acts chapter 25 today, in a moment we're going to get into verse 23. But let me remind you, it's been, I think, three or four weeks now since we were in Acts. And so let me remind you that at this point in the scriptures, Paul has been in prison now, uh, a prisoner of the Roman Empire, for two years. For two long years, he is being held without bail somewhere, maybe in a dungeon, but somewhere in the governor's palace in Caesarea on the Mediterranean Sea. Why? Well, he's there. He's a prisoner because of false accusations, vicious false accusations that have been made against him by the Jewish Sanhedrin. All right. So what were the charges by way of review? First of all, slander against the Jewish law. Second of all, sacrilege against the Jewish temple. And third of all, sedition against the Roman Empire. Now, you know by now the Apostle Paul. And some of you may be thinking, are you kidding? And I would join you in that sentiment. Who in the world would ever make such an audacious claim or three audacious claims against the Apostle Paul? I already said it, the Jewish Sanhedrin, who had a lot of clout, by the way, in Judea. And so Paul has already had his day in court twice. Once, if you remember, um, in front of the Roman governor Felix, and then two years later, in front of the Roman governor, uh, the new governor of Judea, Festus. Both times, the Jewish religious leaders could not prove that Paul had done anything wrong. And so during that second trial, Festus looks at Paul, wanting to do a favor to the Jews. And, and he looks at Paul and he says, do you want to stand trial before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem? And Paul's thinking, no way. If I go back to Jerusalem, my enemies are going to kill me. And so maybe you remember from three or four weeks ago, but Paul exercised his right as a Roman citizen and he appealed to Caesar. And so Festus now is in a pickle. He knew that he had to write a letter to Caesar and he had to explain both the charges and the evidence against this man, Paul, and Festus had no clue what to put in the letter. You know, he certainly could not write Caesar Nero a letter and say, um, uh, a Lord, um, that's what they called Caesar back then, if you're a Roman and you didn't believe in God. Uh, Lord, uh, this guy is Paul. He's a Jewish Roman citizen and he's involved in a religious dispute, which I don't really understand. I don't think he's worthy of death. Um, you can figure it out. Here you go. Well, that's a good way to lose your job. And so Festus is in a pickle. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what to write. And thankfully for him, a man comes on the scene in chapter 25 who can really help Festus out. His name, King Herod Agrippa II. So Agrippa II, this guy had quite a family tree. If you remember, his dad was Agrippa I, the guy who murdered the apostle James back in Acts chapter 12. His great uncle, Herod Antipas, the guy who cut off John the Baptist's head. <laughs> and his great grandfather, Herod the Great, the guy who tried to murder the baby Jesus 
in Bethlehem all those years earlier. Herod Agrippa II, man, when he went to Ancestry.com, he probably cried. You know, talk about a, a horrible family tree. And yet, Herod Agrippa II wasn't as cruel as his forefathers. Okay, so he wasn't as cruel, but he was as immoral. Because if you remember, Herod Agrippa II was living in an incestuous relationship with his half-sister Bernice. And so this infamous couple, Agrippa II and Bernice, they go down to Caesarea, no doubt to congratulate Festus on being appointed as the new governor of uh, Judea. And while they're there, Festus, he sees this as an opportunity. He needs help writing this letter to Caesar. And he knows Agrippa II is an expert in Jewish matters. And so he begins to tell Agrippa II, hey, I got this guy down in my dungeon. His name is Paul. He's in a religious dispute. And Agrippa II says, I'd like to hear the man myself. And that's where we left off three or four weeks ago. Today we pick it up in chapter 25, verse 23. All right, so right now if you're looking at chapter 25, verse 23, say amen. I hope you're looking at the Bible and here we go. We're going to read through the rest of the chapter. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and with the prominent men of the city. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, he clears his throat, <clears throat> King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. Verse 25. But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. You know, help me out with this letter. Verse 27, for it seems, Festus says, it seems to me unreasonable <clears throat> in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Okay, so here's your first point in light of this um, uh, environment that we're looking at here at the end of verse 25. Your first point is nothing compares to Christ. Nothing compares to Christ. Imagine this scene. With all the pomp and pageantry that Rome can muster, the king, Agrippa II, along with Bernice, they come walking into the great hall of Caesarea like peacocks, you know, uh, fluttering their, their feathers in the wind. And as they enter this great hall, they're accompanied by the prominent men of the city. They're accompanied by the, the military leaders um, in that area. They're wearing their royal robes, Agrippa II and Bernice. They have their golden crowns on their head. You know, such pomp, such pageantry, such gold, such glitter. And then all of a sudden, Paul enters in. He's shuffling in in chains and shackles. Humble. Just this little humble rabbi 
who God is using to turn the world upside down, by the way. But can you see the contrast here? And so up here somewhere, you got all the important people and they're dressed to kill their finest clothing. And down here somewhere in the hall, you have the apostle Paul and he's probably wearing the same simple tunic that he's had on for two years while he's been sitting in a dungeon beneath the uh, governor's palace in Caesarea. So the message from the ruling class was very, very clear. Paul, we're important, you're not. We're significant, you're not. We're prime time, you know, you're just a peon. But Paul knew that he had something that none of these people had. He had the glory, the peace, the joy, and the love of the Holy Spirit of God right here in his heart. And when he saw all this pomp and all this pageantry and all this gold and all this glitter, I wonder if Paul thought, how trivial, how trivial compared to the glory of Christ that's been revealed to me. You see, this elaborate display of wealth and power before the apostle, it didn't faze him one bit, not at all. You know why? Because nothing compares to Christ. I wanna challenge those of you who may be living a life of luxury right now. You may look around right wherever you're seated and, and you're surrounded by wealth and comfort and luxury, uh, luxury. I want you to never forget that all your money and all your stuff one day is gonna fade away and you're gonna stand eyeball to eyeball in front of Jesus Christ. Listen, whether you believe it or not, you will. Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will return. You see, all of us, ladies and gentlemen, entered this world penniless. And all of us are one day gonna leave this world penniless, no matter how much money we had in this life. We're gonna leave this world without any of it. You've heard the old adage, I've never seen a hearse pull in a U-Haul. It's true. The question is, are you in a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you ready someday to stand before him eyeball to eyeball? If not, you need to ask yourself, what does it profit a person if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? You see, there's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with having stuff. But we should never allow money or stuff to become the center of our lives. We should never allow it to become the focus, the goal of our lives. No. And so I want to encourage you, turn to Christ. Turn to Christ in repentance and faith. Receive him as your Savior and Lord. Jesus Christ will give you something that money can never buy. And that is eternal life. Talk about abundance and peace and joy. He'll give you that in this life. And if that's not enough, he'll give you eternal life in addition. All right, let's get into chapter 26. 
It says, so Agrippa said to Paul, can you see him standing up there in his royal robe, his golden crown? And so he clears his voice and he says to uh, peon Paul, all right, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and he made his defense. Paul says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm gonna make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to please listen to me patiently. And so because King Agrippa II was well-versed in Jewish matters, Paul, you know, he's happy to be standing before him to give his defense. He knew Agrippa II had been given um, by Caesar uh, jurisdiction and oversight over the temple and over the Sanhedrin. He was able to hire and fire the high priest, okay? So he knew all about this stuff. And so Paul's like, hey, I'm glad to be standing now before you. Verse four, Paul says, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. In case you're new to the Bible, Paul in his BC days was a Pharisee. He was the Pharisee turned apostle of Jesus Christ. Verse six. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope, look at this, in the promise. You may want to underline the promise. And so I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made to God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worshiped night and day. For this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. And so King Agrippa, the only reason I'm standing right here before you right now is because of the promise that God made to our fathers. All right, what was that promise, by the way? Here it is. The promise, straight from the Old Testament, is that the Messiah will come and he will usher in his eternal kingdom. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but in these bodies, we can't live eternally. <laughs> we need new bodies. We need an upgrade. All right, so that point right now on your screen, that necessitates a resurrected, immortal, material body. And this is what Israel had longed for for centuries. Do you remember God's word to Isaiah? 700 years before Christ, it says that the Messiah would one day come and that he would one day rule. Let me read it to you. It's in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. I'm sure as soon as I start to read it, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about, and it's going to remind you of December 25th. <laughs> For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, I love this, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government. And by the way, that's not just government in heaven, that's government here on earth. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of who? David, King David. 
And so on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and what's the next word? Forevermore. All right, so Jesus is coming. He's gonna establish a government and it's gonna be forevermore. And then he says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so Messiah is gonna come. Messiah is gonna rule. That's what the Old Testament was telling to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob century after century after century. But what many Jews didn't realize is that before the Messiah would deliver his people from physical oppression, listen to this, stay with me here. He first had to come and provide deliverance for the whole world from spiritual oppression, from slavery to sin and death. And that would necessitate that he suffer, that he die, and that he rise again, which is also prophesied in the Old Testament. Look again at what Isaiah also wrote now. This is Isaiah chapter 53. I'm not gonna read the whole chapter to you, but he says in Isaiah 53, four, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, some translations by his stripes, we are healed. All we, leak, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. Look at, listen, the same Isaiah that prophesied that Jesus would come and that he would rule and his government on the earth would be forever is the same Isaiah that prophesied that he would suffer and that he would die. Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, verse eight, he was cut off from the land of the living. Listen, cut off from the land of the living means you're dead. And so the Messiah will rule. The Messiah will suffer and die, but the story doesn't end there. David prophesied about 1,000 years BC in Psalm 16, verses nine and 10. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Look at this. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One, he's talking about the Christ, the coming Messiah, or let your Holy One see corruption. Ladies and gentlemen, 1,000 years before Christ, David the king prophesied that the body of the Holy One, the body of the Messiah, would not stay in the grave long enough to see corruption that he would physically rise from the dead. 
Now, this is what the Romans found so incredulous. They could not get their minds around a physical res uh, resurrection. You know, they believed, yeah, you know, some of them believed, when, when our spirits die, our, not our bodies, but our spirits are going to go to um, the Elysian fields, you know, some kind of mystical, ethereal, foggy realm. That's what the Romans believed. But to physically rise from the dead, these bodies materially becoming immortal, there's no way. And so Paul knew they were skeptical, and that's why he said, now look at verse eight. He says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? By the way, don't you love the boldness of Paul? He's standing there in shackles in the great hall of Caesarea before a king and his half-sister lover and the prominent people of Caesarea and the, the military leaders and the governor of Judea and probably a bunch of other people, and he is putting them on trial. He's like, why is it so incredible by any of you Romans that God raises the dead? So what was lacking in the great hall of Caesarea? What was lacking was faith. And it's still lacking today. You know, I'm so grateful for our first responders, as I know you are. I'm so grateful for our, um, all those heroes across our country that are sacrificing their time, putting themselves in harm's way to take care of other people, to take care of patients that have COVID-19 who are working um, double shifts. And, um, you know, we're so grateful, right? for all of these people. We're so grateful for all the Christians who have refused to allow this to stop them from, from continuing on and, and being the church. We're so grateful. But I gotta tell you, in the last seven weeks, a lot of people have been absolutely freaking out. They've allowed themselves to fall into this grip of fear um, because of COVID-19, they're filled with anxiety. They're hoarding supplies. They're politically playing, playing the blame game. They're spreading fear all over social media. And, and here's what, it, if you're honest, here's what it boils down to. It's a lack of faith in God. As Pastor Mike Lawrence said last week, God is greater than the coronavirus. The problem is, if we focus on COVID-19 more than we focus on Christ, well, it's no wonder we're freaking out. And so don't forget what the story of Peter. As long as he kept his focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter, a mere man, walked on water. But as soon as he got his eyes on the storm, he began to sink. We've got to keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, especially at times like these, because he's alive, he's well, he wants to change our lives just like he changed the life of the Apostle Paul. And Paul's gonna continue to talk about that life change right here starting in verse nine. He's talking about his BC days now, and he says to everybody in this great hall, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, are you guys following here? Paul put Christians to death. 
And so when they were put to death, he says, I cast my vote against them, verse 11. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And so Paul tells everybody in this great hall, hey, you want to know how great my God is, my God who raises the dead? Here's how great my God is. He changed my life. Me, somebody who used to go around and lock up Christians, somebody who used to go around and force them to blaspheme, somebody who used to go around and vote that these people who followed Jesus be put to death. Now, if you really just stop long enough to think about this, you have to admit that Paul was a religious terrorist. <laughs> he was a religious terrorist. This is what religious terrorists do. They kill people in the name of God. And so that's Saul. Hebrew name Saul, right? Roman name Paul. This is Saul in his BC days. Based on what he did, he was a terrorist, he was an evildoer, and he was a monster. But here's the good news. When he met Jesus Christ, the terrorist turned into a teacher and the evildoer turned into an evangelist and the monster turned into a missionary. That's the power of Christ. Some of you may think, I sinned too big this time. God, there's no way, no way that he can forgive me. There's no way he even cares about me. Listen, if Paul cared about a religious terrorist named Saul of Tarsus, and if God could forgive him, he can forgive anybody. And so you just got to turn to Christ in repentance and faith. Let him do the work. And so right now in our Bibles, for the third time in Acts, Luke, the historian, the author of Acts, the doctor, the companion of Paul, He's going to record Paul's testimony for the third time. Now, when something is repeated three times in the scriptures, it means it's really important. We've already studied it in depth, I think, twice. So we're just going to read through it this time. But I encourage you, man, if you ever, if you ever want to share with somebody a, a, a changed life from the scripture, use these three stories from the book of Acts, the testimony of how Saul was changed to Paul, all right? So we're gonna read from verses 12 all the way down to verse 20. Again, because we've already studied it, we're just gonna read it. So verse 12, Paul's continuing to address the king. He says, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven. Brighter than the sun, wow, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, I'm alive. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise, stand on your feet. 
for I have appeared to you for this purpose. By the way, this is what you call grace right here. To appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from, the peop from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. So Christ, looking at Paul on the road to Damascus, says, I'm sending you, son, to the Gentiles. Look at verse 18, so important. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And Paul says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should, please, 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 look at the end of verse 20, that they should, all right, say the next word out loud in your living room. They should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And so Paul shares his testimony with the king and everybody else in this great hall. And after he's done sharing this testimony, he, he tells them, hey, for the last 25 years, I've been obeying the heavenly vision that Christ gave me on the road to Damascus. For 25 years, I've told both Jews and Gentiles across the entire Roman Empire that they need to repent. That's a very interesting word. What does it mean? What does repent mean? It means the word... And then there's the Greek transliteration of the word, which I won't try to pronounce. But the word repent expresses the true New Testament idea of the spiritual change implied in a sinner's return to God. The term signifies, okay, here it is, to have another mind, to change the opinion or purpose with regard to sin. It is equivalent, this is very interesting, it is equivalent to the Old Testament word, turn. Ladies and gentlemen, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. So important that you understand this. Here I have one coin, right? And so imagine faith is heads, repentance is tails. Faith, repentance, two sides, but listen, it's the same coin. You cannot have saving faith without repentance, and you cannot have true repentance without saving faith. And so repentance is a change of mind. That leads to a change of life, but it the word means it's a change of mind. And so follow me here. So important that you understand this. Repentance is a change of mind concerning sin, right? All, all of a sudden we know my sin is wrong. I don't love my sin. It's wrong. I abhor my sin. And so repentance is a change of mind concerning sin. Repentance is a change of mind concerning self. 
right? I cannot save myself. There's no way I could ever work hard enough to ever earn God's favor and earn the glories of heaven. I changed my mind about my sin. I changed my mind about myself. And I changed my mind about the Savior. Sin, self, and Savior. That means that Jesus Christ is the only one who can save me because he's the only one, God eternal, who clothed himself with human flesh, went to a cross, paid for my sins, died, and three days later, walked out of that tomb victorious over sin and death. And so it's a change of mind. And here, here's, here's what happens. I turn from my sin, the best way I know how, to Christ in repentance and faith and a change of mind, trusting in him. And what does he do? He saves me. And then here's sanctification. He changes my direction. He changes my direction. If you take repentance out of the Christian message, as some have tried to do, Christianity stops being Christianity. Now, what does a repentant life look like? Look at verse 18. It's so important that we see this. Jesus tells us what a repentant life looks like. He says in verse 18, to open their eyes, that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so a repentant life looks like walking in the light and not the darkness. It's following God and not following Satan. And so here's your next point. If you're taking notes, a repentant life means more than just saying, I'm sorry. I want you to imagine if Stacy and I are heading to a, a new restaurant, okay? And so all the governing officials and medical experts have given us a green light. The economy's back open. Praise the Lord, restaurants are open. So uh, Stacy and I decide to, to go to a new restaurant. We don't know where it is. So she's the navigator. She pulls it up on her smartphone. I'm driving. She's in the passenger seat. She's guiding. We're heading south on US 1. And she says, honey, at the next light, I want you to turn left. I'm not really listening. And so at the next light, I turn right. And instead of heading east, now I'm heading west. And she looks at me and says, honey, um, I told you to turn left. And I say, oh, oh yeah, sorry. And I keep heading west. And so <laughs> she says, but you're still heading the wrong way. And I say, excuse me? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, S sorry. And she says, well, are you going to turn around? And I say, sorry. And then she says, Mike, you're going the wrong way. And I say, I said, I'm sorry. What more do you want? Stop nagging me. And I keep heading west. Now, if I did that, you'd probably think I was playing the fool. But listen, how many people do exactly that in their lives? You see, they make a wrong turn in life. And then when confronted by someone, 
Instead of turning around, all they say is, sorry, but they fail to turn around. Now, here's the tragedy. The tragedy is, as long as they're heading that way, they're never going to reach God's desired destination for their lives. Here's what you need to know. The Lord has an amazing plan for your life. <laughs> Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope and to give you a future, a plan that's gonna bring spiritual fulfillment into your life, a plan you know, that will actually fulfill you and give you meaning and give you purpose. It starts with accepting the good news of Jesus Christ. As I said, turning from our sin, turning to Christ, changing our mind about him and receiving him as our savior. And what does he do? He saves us. Just, justified by faith. And then the sanctification process starts, ladies and gentlemen. So what, what, what happens? We get baptized and we identify publicly with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. And then we start to pray and we start to get to know this person in heaven who loves us so much. And then we start to get into his word and we learn the Ten Commandments. We learn, right, the, the Sermon on the Mount. We, we learn the principles of all the letters in the New Testament. We learn them. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, we begin to walk the these things out in a perverse world. And then what happens? We join a local church. Why? Because Christ is the head of the church and the church is his body and Jesus loves the church. And he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we find out what church we're supposed to be in and we join that local church. And then all the while, what are we doing? We're letting our light shine and we're, we're, we're sharing the love of Christ with other people, with our words and with our deeds. That's what a repentant life looks like. But if we're going the wrong way, we'll never get there. We'll never reach God's desired destination that he has for us. And so one more time, I really want to make sure you see this. Look at the end of verse 20. Paul says that they, the Gentiles, should repent and turn to God performing, here's the fruit of true salvation, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. There it is. Faith without works is dead. He goes on. In verse 21, he says, for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple. They tried to kill me. And to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ might must suffer. He's going back to the Old Testament again. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And so Paul's going for it. He's filled with the Holy Spirit of God. He doesn't care what anybody thinks. And right in the middle of his message, Festus starts yelling at Paul. The Roman governor of Judea starts yelling at Paul. And Festus says now in verse 24, as Paul was saying these things, Festus says with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. By the way, I'm glad no one at church ever does that to me. But anyway, you know, security, 
Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. In other words, you're crazy, dude. Verse 25. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus. Paul was such a nice guy here. But I am speaking true and rational words. For the king, he turns his attention back to Agrippa II. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Christianity has not for the last 25 years been done in a corner. Agrippa II knows exactly what I'm talking about here. And then look at verse 27. This is cool. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Silence. And then he says, I know that you believe. All right, so up to this point, everyone thought Paul was on trial, but now the king himself is on trial. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Paul's trying to get the king to admit to the fact that he believes the prophets because then Paul could show him from the prophecies how Christ Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. Do you believe the prophets? Crickets, no response. Now, why was the king silent? Was it pride? Was he thinking, there's no way I'm going to let this Christian man get to me? Was it peer pressure? Man, if I say I believe the prophets, what's Festus going to think about me? Was it fear? If I become a Christian, I'm going to lose everything. Was it the love of sin? If I become a Christian, you know, I'm going to lose Bernice. Here's the thing. The Holy Spirit is drawing King Herod Agrippa II. Is he going to resist or is he going to surrender? Let's find out. Verse 28, and Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And I think, wow, he's almost there. This guy is really seriously considering what Paul is saying to him, but sadly, he's indicating he needs more time. You know, are you going to tell me, um, are you going to persuade me to be a Christian in such a short time? I need more time to think about this, right? And Paul says in verse 29, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And he lifts up his hands and shows everybody his shackles. Verse 30, and the king arose. That's what you do when you're under conviction, you leave. He arose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man's doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. All right, so here's your final point. Please stay with me to the end here. Your final point is that Agrippa was almost persuaded to turn to Christ in repentance and faith. But almost only counts in horseshoes, <laughs> not heaven. As far as we know from history, Agrippa II never became a follower of Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered what stops people from trusting Christ and from following him? Is it pride? You know, I'm not going to let these Christians get the best of me. 
Is it peer pressure? What are other people gonna think if I start following Jesus? Is it love of sin? Man, if I turn to Christ, then I'm gonna have to give up whatever. Is it fear? If I turn to Christ, you know, he's gonna send me to a third world nation. I'm gonna be a missionary. I'm gonna be poor the rest of my life. Hey, it's better to be in a third world nation and be poor and be filled with meaning and purpose and be in the center of God's will than be in America and make a million dollars and live an empty life. Give your life to Jesus Christ. If you're almost persuaded, don't listen to any excuse. Don't let anything stop you from turning to Christ in repentance and faith. And so if you wanna know how to do that, go to our website, calvarypsl.com, scroll down, click the big box, Knowing Christ. Click more information, read it, it's only this long. It'll recap what I just said about what the gospel is. And then you, in the privacy of your own home, turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. You'll be so glad that you did. Fill out that form, we'll send you a Bible and we look forward to meeting you once COVID-19 is over and we all gather together. And so next week, Paul's gonna face this incredible storm and he's gonna be shipwrecked. Ever been through a storm? Well, we all have. And so looking forward to seeing you next week and teaching through Acts chapter 27. We're almost there, folks. Love you guys. God bless.